Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has set also her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever's simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Shoal. Father, we ask tonight that you would guide us in your word and remove from us any guards that we have put up between us and you, Father. Let your word come directly to us like a freight train, crash into our lives, and have dominion over us, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom, essentially. We think it's written by Solomon, the wisest king to ever rule on the earth. And God came to him almost as if a genie and said, Solomon, what do you want? It's yours. And Solomon asked not for gold, not for girls, not for glory. He asked for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. And so Solomon began to reign with lots of wisdom. The kingdom became renowned, and he began to speak what are called Proverbs. And people began to write these down and keep record of these Proverbs, and we have the compilation we credit mostly to Solomon unless otherwise specified in the book. So that's essentially what we're dealing with. Now, you can divide the book of Proverbs technically into like six sections, but we'll just work basically here and put it into two sections. We're working in the first. It's chapters one through nine. Chapters one through nine are letters from a father to a son. Son, seek wisdom. That's his point. Seek wisdom, seek wisdom, seek wisdom. Then chapters 10 all the way to the end, second half. And that's essentially the Proverbs themselves, where you have short forms of poetry that are meant to get right to the point and to be memorable, usually by way of parallel or contrast. And so 
I used to always, um, I used to always think, oh gosh, the book of Proverbs doesn't actually start till chapter 10. That's the good stuff. All these short little like nuggets of application. I get all excited for 10 through 31. But I've actually learned as I've gone through the Proverbs several, several, several times that I love chapters 1 through 9. They're, they're actually very deep if you're willing to listen. And that, I think that's the hard part of those chapters. <laughs> Becoming a son and listening to the Father's instruction. That's what we are in the middle of. So the reason I chose chapter 9 tonight is because it is the end of that first section. It is the conclusion of the letters to the son. So the father, what he's doing here in chapter 9 is he's borrowing themes from chapters 1 through 8 and compiling them into a summary in chapter 9. So if you want to know what the beginning of Proverbs is about, you can get the summary right here in chapter 9. And I think what his main message is to his son is he's saying, all right, here's a summary in chapter 9. This is what I want you to do, son. Seek wisdom. Seek wisdom for wisdom functions under the restoration of God. Seek wisdom because when you have wisdom, you're, you're in now the realm where you're in that restored community with God which you did not have before. So putting that another way is to say if you don't seek wisdom, son, you're going to remain exiled from God. Wisdom is your way back to having relationship with God which every man on the planet earth has lost. So... That is, I think, the gist of what he wants to say here in chapter 9. Seek wisdom. For when you find wisdom, you find restoration with God. And you live in that blessed sphere. No longer in the cursed, exiled realm of the dead. So as we dive in, what we're going to see, you guys caught it as we read. This is a very pictorial chapter. You have contrast here. Two women. Wisdom is personified as one woman. We'll call her Lady Wisdom. And folly, the opposite of wisdom, is portrayed, is personified as another woman. More of a harlot. Suddenly in there, she's more of a harlot. So you have two women, Wisdom, Folly. They're both doing much of the same thing. They're sitting at their house. They're preparing a feast. They're calling for the simpletons, all of humanity, to come to their feast. And the, the what the... Father wants his son to do with this chapter is to decide whose feast, whose house am I going to? Am I going to go to Lady Wisdom's feast and dine in her house? Or am I going to go to Madam Folly's feast and dine in her house? So it kind of pits us in that you've got a choice here. So as we look at this, the way I want to start before we get to Lady Wisdom and Madam Folly is we need to understand what the Proverbs mean when they refer to wisdom. What the Proverbs mean by wisdom. Not, not what I mean, not what we mean as a culture in America. We want to know what the writer here intends when he uses the word wisdom. Because culturally we have an understanding of wisdom. And it generally works like this. Not that this is wrong, but this is very shallow. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but our culture takes biblical words and completely cheapens them down. Such as faith, which is basically positive hope, pretty much is the way they use faith. Um, hope is even cheapened down to basically it's wishful thinking. I hope my car isn't going to be jacked tonight. Um, even love 
has been definitely cheapened. So we want to get back to the biblical meaning of words, and that's what I want to do with wisdom. So typically this is how we understand wisdom. Wisdom is the proper application of either your experience or your knowledge. So you've got experience, this is how I'm going to use it. That's wisdom. I've got knowledge, so I'm going to use it. It's wisdom. For example, you're walking through the woods, as I was one night, in the dark. You had flashlights. And you see a black little creature that looks like a cat with a white stripe down its back cross in front of you. Now, knowledge says that's a skunk. But wisdom says... Now, applying your knowledge says, get away. So that's, that's how wisdom generally works. That's how we usually use it. The application of your knowledge and experience. Another way we also look at wisdom is essentially, it's a good virtue to add to your repertoire of characteristics. All right, you either have it or you don't. It's like one of those things, like he's a wise person. Maybe one day I'll get his experience. Or he's not so wise, kind of a fool. And it's just kind of like one of those, like, yeah, you either are, you're not, no big deal. Add it to your characteristic palette or not. On the Proverbs, it is a big deal. It's not one of those, maybe you can add it to your characteristic palette. It's a huge deal. So then, that's how our culture looks at it. But how do the Proverbs understand wisdom? Quite deeply. Generally, the Bible looks at wisdom as an acquired skill that one has in a particular domain. An acquired skill. So, you guys might remember in Exodus 31, when they're building the tabernacle in the wilderness, God called certain individuals to help build the tabernacle. And there in Exodus 31, it says that he gave them a spirit of wisdom to build the tabernacle. Well, how would that make sense if we're saying the proper application of, so I know that that's a skunk, therefore I'm not going to... Like those types of things don't necessarily help in building a tabernacle. What's being used there, in fact, the ESV just translates it for you. It basically says skill. God gave them wisdom, or he gave them skill to build the tabernacle. The Psalms use wisdom to refer to a sailor's skill. It said that when the storm came, all their wisdom left them, or their sailmanship had left them. So it refers to skill in a particular domain. And more specifically, for God's people... This skill, this acquired skill of wisdom, is to be used in the realm of ruling the earth. That's the wisdom God wants his people to have. In Genesis 1 verse 28, it was to Adam that God said, it was basically the first great commission of the Bible, he says to Adam, subdue the earth and have dominion over creation. And multiply to do it. So Adam was given the command to be God's under king and to rule creation. Skill to rule creation. That's wisdom. That's what we ought to be going for. Um, To give you an idea here, in Proverbs 8 verse 15, we see wisdom being used. I would see it in this sense, 8.15. Wisdom speaking, by me kings reign, rulers decree what is just, by me princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. Now that's not universally true. 
Okay, we have a lot of people in office that are not ruling with wisdom. So obviously, this, what the author here is not trying to say is every king has wisdom. That's not the point. The point is that mankind is supposed to rule the earth through wisdom. That's the skill he needs to understand how to have dominion over creation rather than letting creation have dominion over him, which is what we see. We have this horrible abuse problem with our world's resources and we allow culture to shape the way we think rather than the other way around. God wanted man to be the cultivators of the earth. And wisdom is a skill he needs in order to do that. So that's one way the Bible looks at wisdom. And then it goes one more step further. Wisdom is an essential component if you want eternal life. If you don't have wisdom, according to the Proverbs, read, as you guys are reading through it, look for this. You'll see it. If you don't have wisdom, you don't have life. Repeat it over and over. The fool does not spend eternity with God. Period. So wisdom is not just a mere thing to add to your repertoire of characteristic traits and all those qualities and virtues. It's essential. There's no such thing as a foolish Christian. No, I mean, you might be dumb and hammer your finger with the hammer, you know, stuff like that. But wisdom's always paralleled with righteousness and the way that you act morally before an almighty God. Example, Proverbs 4.11. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. Second line, parallels. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. See that? The author is paralleling the way of wisdom with the path of righteousness. So if you're walking in the way of wisdom, you are in the path of uprightness and righteousness. Or Proverbs 9.9 in our text. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. See those two lines are saying the exact same thing. It's just replacing words. So the wise man is the righteous man. Both of them will increase if you rebuke them or give them instruction. So wisdom is an essential component of those who have a relationship with God. And wisdom affects the way you make moral decisions for life on this globe for God. But now you might want to know. So what does it mean, Brandon? Wisdom has the application of it's your skill that you need to acquire to rule the earth and it's something you must have to have eternal life. How do these even compat? compat? How are these compatible? <laughs> Very much so. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 where we see Adam now, James chapter 3 tells us that there's two kinds of wisdom on this earth. There's the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. In other words, wisdom from God, wisdom from Satan. Worldly wisdom, heavenly wisdom. Two kinds of wisdom. Now, Adam understood, if I am to have dominion over the earth, if I'm to subdue it, if I'm supposed to be a culture cultivator, I need wisdom. He knew that. So, we see in the garden, particularly in Genesis 2.9, it talks about two trees, right? The tree of life, the tree of knowledge. Tree of knowledge. 
That word knowledge is picked up at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, where the whole point of the book is summarized. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And in Hebrew poetry, knowledge and wisdom are synonymous terms. So, there is a tree of knowledge of wisdom in the garden. Adam knows he needs wisdom to rule it. Then in Genesis 3.6, the serpent picks up on this and comes up to Adam and says, in Genesis 3.6, well, he doesn't say, but Eve hears the serpent. Then Eve realizes, it says there in Genesis 3.6, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And the serpent said, your eyes will be opened. You'll have insight. The stuff you need to rule as God asked you to. So Adam recognized, I... To rule God's world and creation, it's required that I have wisdom. Where he fell and rebelled was where he acquired the wisdom. Alright, the requirement for wisdom was needed, but where do you acquire it? That's the difference. That's why James says there's two kinds of wisdom. And Adam's sin was in going to somewhere other than God to acquire wisdom. He acquired worldly wisdom. And that's where... The curse sets in, man fell, and we were exiled from God's presence. And that's where man remains. We are born in folly, we're born in the cursed, exiled condition apart from God. And that's why the Father is begging the Son, please, seek wisdom, because wisdom is going to be your path to bring you back to restoration with God, where you're meant to be, and live in an Edenic state for all the days of your life. Just one quick example. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 18. Wisdom is the path to restoration. Proverbs 3, 18. It says, she, referring to wisdom. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. See that? The curse turns to blessed. We had taken from the tree of knowledge, but now we get the tree of life. So we're now also looking at an eternal realm here. The tree of life deals with your spiritual life, not your physical life. So, with that groundwork laid now, we are ready to look at what does Lady Wisdom have to say and what does Madam Folly have to say. Ready? Let's go. (laughs) Genesis, Proverbs 9, 1 through 6 is where we see Lady Wisdom. So she's personified as a woman... It's where you give an inanimate object personality. So wisdom becomes a woman, and she's calling out as wisdom, the inanimate object does to us. And we see what she's done is she's, she's prepared a feast, and she wants everyone, the humanity, she's calling out from the highest places, come, I've made this for you, come and enjoy yourself. Pleasure's yours. I want to look at what is the house here in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. It doesn't say that Madam Folly builds a house. It just says she has a house. But wisdom builds a house. There's speculation about what that house is. But I'm going to give you guys what I believe it is. I believe that the house wisdom sits in is a temple where she wants mankind to come and be restored to God in. She's sitting in a place where God dwells and she wants men to find wisdom in God. 
Four reasons I think so. The first, look at verse 3. It says, the high places. She sent out her young woman to call from the highest places in the town. Now, every single temple back in these days was built on the highest places of every town. You didn't put it in a valley. You put it where everyone in the city could see it. And you also read um, in the Kings and Chronicles that when the Jews, when the Israelites would rebel against God and go worship other gods, what did it call it? They went to the high places. And in Mount Zion is considered the pinnacle of Israel. It's the high place where Jerusalem, uh, where the temple is built in Jerusalem. So here she is sitting on the high places. I'm in an important spot. This is a place to meet with God in. And look at verse 2. It says that she has slaughtered her beasts and mixed her wine. Now, yes, that could be a nice meal. But also, interestingly, is that it was the sacrifice of animals and the pouring of drink offerings that was given to God in the temple. Those were the, the, the objects of sacrifice, wine and animals. And you look also at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars now, the pillars is weak, but often you can think of temples when you hear pillars. Um, Solomon had pillars in his temple. You read in Revelation, God promises to those who overcome to become a pillar in the house of his God. So pillars can also refer to house, like a home. But at the same time, in Jerusalem, the temple is called the house of God. So I think pillars is hinting at a temple. And then finally, in that same verse right there. It says, not just pillars, but seven pillars. Why seven? Well, people talk about it's the number of completion, it's the number of perfection, all these things. But frankly, just if you turn back to one page, wisdom was just described as being with God during the creation of the earth. In 8 verse 22 on down. I think seven pillars refers to the seven days of creation as it often does through the Old Testament. And this is stunning because what creation was when God made the heavens and the earth in seven days, it says that on the seventh day in Genesis 2, 2, that he rested. Now, I for years just simply thought that meant he ceased from working because he had done it all. There's nothing more to do. But then I realized when a God enters a temple... He's considered to be at rest. And this, is, this was known through all of the culture at this time. This is what they, you read ancient documents. There's a couple verses in the Psalms. It says that God rests in the temple. So when it says that God rested, it means he entered into his temple, the earth. That's what it was. He created a temple for himself and made man to be his little priests and kings to spread his glory throughout the world. But that was before Adam profaned the temple. And so now the earth isn't exactly that dwelling place of God anymore. And that's why we have problems. We don't live in the presence of God. So I think that wisdom here sitting in a temple... And she is calling. This, this house is a dwelling place of God. And she's, she's calling to all of cursed and exiled humanity who have no relationship with God. Come here and find restoration. I, wisdom, will give it to you. You will find that place of belonging with God if you come here. 
but she has competition. Verse 13. Madam Folly. She opposes and mimics Lady Wisdom. <laughs> Look how she mimics her in verse 14. She sits at the door of her house, takes a seat on the highest places. There she is, mocking, putting up the image that this is a temple. So it's a spiritual place. And in verse 15, she's calling to those who pass by the same words that Lady Wisdom used. Same words. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, then that's where it changes. But she's calling to the same people. If you're simple, turn in here. Same message. Competition. But here's where she opposes Lady Wisdom. Verse 13 says that Madam Folly is loud. She's trying to get in your face. Is that not what the world does? Trying to buy our attention? Look at 711. It refers, this is where it's referring to the harlot that the father's begging the son not to be led astray by the, the prostitute. He says, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. So here's Madame Folly. She is loud. She's trying to get your attention and to be turned aside to her. Notice also in verse 13, it says... <laughs> She is seductive, or some of your translations say she's simple and knows nothing. Now, it's not to say that she's stupid, okay? Knows nothing, we should hark back to 5 or 6. Get an idea. Again, we're talking about the prostitute. 5, 6. She does not ponder the path of life. Key phrase, path of life. Her, her ways wander and she does not know it. So when she knows nothing, it's likely talking about the paths of life, that she's simple about them. Simple meaning, I just, I, yep, well, ignorance about the ways of life. So there's, there's no life that goes beyond your present existence with Madame Folly. What does she offer? Verse 17, stolen water. And verse, uh, the bottom half of 17, bread eaten in secret. What does that mean? Stolen water. Oh, big deal. Wait, what if you didn't know she stole the water? Now, don't, don't take it that literally. Take it as the author wants you to read it. You have to jump back to 5, verse 15 for this one. Well, I'm not going to actually read it, but 5.15 to the end of the chapter, if you guys have been reading, you know what it says. It talks about drinking water from your own cistern, not from another cistern. And the point is that the water represents your satisfaction in your sexual desires. So you're to drink water from your own wife, not from another's wife, is what it goes on to say. And so here she's offering stolen water. The point is she's offering free sex. Anything that appeals or instantly gratifies the seeker. So here, imagine a guy just walking by, and she's calling out loud, gets his attention, and looks, stolen water, it's free, it's fun, instantly gratified. And the fool bites the bait. Meanwhile, Lady Wisdom, she's sending people out to bring them in. There takes some faith there to follow. It takes some time and patience, but the eternal pleasures are worth it. 
And then the bread refers to the same thing in 6 verse 26. Um, It talks about when a man does commit adultery, he is reduced to a crust of bread. So here she is offering bread. All the symbols being borrowed from earlier chapters are all referring to prostitution. Which, in short, he's just using the big one for young men, which would, in a nutshell, you could say this is instant gratification. So if it's drugs for you, if it's sex for you, if it's pornography for you, if it's finding vain glory in the way you exaggerate about your abilities, that's your ballpark. So why does it matter? Why does, why does it take nine chapters for the Father to tell us, all right, choose wisdom? Like, don't you think you get the point? Yeah, I don't want to be a fool. I want to be wise. Why does this matter? Why is this so important to him? I think that what you guys are seeing is that this isn't merely a characteristic we're adding to your repertoire of virtues. It's a lot bigger deal than that. It's why this matters. Verse, back in our chapter 9, look at 6. Lady Wisdom says, leave your simple ways and live. So if you're in your simple ways, that means prior to wisdom, you're not living. And walk in the way of insight. Also jump down to verse 11. By me, wisdom, your days will be multiplied. Now last I knew, the virtue of wisdom might add a couple weeks to your life. Like, don't play in the freeway? Okay, that'll add some days to your life. That's wise. But your days will be multiplied? We're we're dealing with more than your just everyday living. And years, years will be added to your life. Um, Contrast that with Madame Folly in verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there. (laughs) So we're polar opposites here. And that her guests are in the depths of Shoal. So we're dealing with very opposite results here. This is why this matters. This is why the father cares about the son hearing him. Don't go to Madame Folly's house. I understand that the pleasures that are offered there are easy. They look innocent. It may not seem like a big deal. She sounds the same as Lady Wisdom. The father's pleading, don't go there because the end of that road is death. And they didn't know it till they entered. So take Lady Wisdom because that's life. So when Adam went to the tree of knowledge and ate from it, this is what he had. He had the tree of life, which was seen as a result of wisdom from the Proverbs. And he had the tree of knowledge or the tree of desiring wisdom apart from God. And when he ate from the tree of knowledge, essentially what you had there were the two women, Lady Wisdom and Madam Folly, crying to Adam and saying, which house are you going to eat from? Where are you going to spend your time? And he said no to the dwelling place of God. He, he went and ate with Madam Folly. And the result of that wasn't just merely, oh, Adam died physically. It was a spiritual death. That is universally affecting humankind to the point that we are all born in a state of folly. We're born in an exiled, separated, cursed condition away from God. That's what that did going to Madame Folly's house. That's what ignorance towards wisdom does to your life. Yeah, it's going to make it harder here. 
The way of the transgressor, the way of the transgressor is hard, another proverb will say, but it's going to make it extremely hard when you die. So this is why this is, this is a big deal. <laughs> Further, Lady Wisdom's house. Here she's in a house and she's leading the people to the house. Colossians 2 verse 3 tells us that in Jesus are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus, that is hidden. Jesus is the house that Lady Wisdom is calling human, humankind to. This house of wisdom that, that wisdom's, Lady Wisdom is begging us to come to has been relocated in Jesus Christ. And now Wisdom is pleading for you to come to Jesus. Jesus himself said that he's the house. You might recall when he had his temper tantrum. That's a weak way. That's a bad way of putting it. When he had his righteous anger in the temple... And he he drove out all those people, the fools, who were keeping man away from real restoration with God. And he whipped them out of the father's house. And what did he say to them? "Who, Who are you to do this? He said to them, destroy this house. And in three days, I'll build it back up. And they are all confused. Oh my gosh, it took over 40 years to build this thing. Blah, blah, blah. You can't do that. It's impossible. And then John comments... But Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So the house of God moved from the physical temple to the body of Jesus. He is the new temple of God. He's the house and wisdom is crying, come to the house, come to the temple, come to the dwelling place of God where God meets mankind in and through Jesus and you are given wisdom for eternity to be restored with God. That's why this is a big deal. We're not just dealing with, with virtues. We're dealing with destinies. We're dealing with life and death itself. So at this point, it's proper for us to ask, okay, how do I get to Lady Wisdom's house? How do I prevent going to Madame Folly? How do I know I'm in Lady Wisdom's house? Or you just might be floating around going... Yep, that's me. I'm, I guess I'm the fool. I'm the simple one they're calling to because I don't know where I am. Clear direction here in verse 10. 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, not until I fear God can I possess wisdom. Wisdom is impossible unless I fear God. This phrase, fear of the Lord, at the very beginning of the book, 1-7, after the introduction, the, first, the very first verse of the book, 1-7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, uh, synonymous for wisdom, says it there. Um, the book uses the fear of the Lord 14 times. It's a big deal in this book. And not only 9-10 here, but Job 28 verse 28 and Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 both affirm. So all of the wisdom literature here is affirming this one fact. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
This is foundational to Jewish theology. So with that hammered out, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Because that's a phrase I've struggled with for years. Fear God. Well, it doesn't mean be afraid of Him. Well, what does it mean then? That's usually what I used to always hear. Fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear God? Because this is where you get to Lady Wisdom's house. And there is no wisdom calling to you. There's no possession of wisdom until you know what it means to fear God. And you are walking in the fear of God. So what does it mean? It should be clarified here that there are two kinds of wisdom. Alright, there's... The kind of wisdom that is an awareness of danger. So that's where you feel threatened by like a malicious being. You suddenly have an awareness of danger and you feel fear. Um, and an example of that would be a roaring lion walks into the building. That would be fear. as a malicious being. The other kind of wisdom would be an awareness of power. Not an awareness of danger, but an awareness of power where you recognize that there is a being of uttermost superiority and power over your helpless position. If you've ever been in a place where there's a superior being with utmost power over your helpless position, there is an element of fear knowing that you can't do a thing for yourself and you're at the complete mercy of that being that's superior to you. An example of this would be if, if a blindingly bright angel appeared before us. There is nothing we can do. That angel gets what it wants. But it's not malicious and it's not out to hurt you like the lion. So it's this, it's this awe, this wow, this I'm helpless type of fear. C.S. Lewis illustrates these this, this second kind of fear, the, the awareness of power, this awe for some higher being in the Chronicles of Narnia. You might remember if you've seen the movie or read the book, um, the character Eustace, the little brat child in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he, he turns into a dragon because he covets gold and... In that state, he becomes a dragon, and he desperately wants to become a human again, a little boy again. And one night, Aslan appears to him. In the book, it's different than the movie. Aslan appears to him, and he, through a series, he transforms Eustace back into a boy. And Eustace is a changed man after that, changed boy after that. And in the book, Eustace is relating the story to Edmund and the others, and he tells it to them like this. And what he does is, in the, in the way he retells the story, he describes the fear he felt when he saw Aslan, the lion who represents God. So this is the way he described the fear when he saw Aslan. He says, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. And one strange thing was that there was no moon that night. But there was moonlight where the lion was. And so it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that, being a dragon, I could have knocked the lion out easily enough. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand I was just 
afraid of it. It was like this. It might have been loving towards me, but it's like I was helpless before its awe-inspiring power. That, I think, captures the idea of what it means to fear the Lord. That's what 9.10 is addressing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, wisdom begins when I am just astounded and awed by the power of God over my helpless situation. Or to put it in a much simpler way, is when I finally understand my position before Him. That He's the Creator and I'm the creation. Or He's the judge and I'm the defendant. What he says goes. That's the fear of the Lord. That awe for his position over mine. And so to fear God is not to be afraid of him, not to cower from him, not to run from him. To fear God is to live with a trembling respect for his justice. So if you live with a trembling respect for His justice, you are fearing God. What I mean by His justice is that He's the judge of the earth. And all of mankind's deeds are going to fall under His sentence. And if I have a trembling respect for that justice, I am walking in the fear of God. Now, the reason wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord is that if I don't respect this justice, I'm not going to live like he's going to judge me. Prostitutes, yay. Or like chapter 1, by the way, chapter 1 is an illustration of the fear of the Lord. Chapter 1 describes the people who run around saying, hey, let's just let's shed innocent blood, let's steal all their goods from them. Demonstrates a lack of respect for God's justice. But if I live with the trembling respect for his justice, that my every deed is held accountable to the judge of the universe, I will naturally walk in wisdom. I'm not going to be a fool. I'm going to be righteous. So that's why 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's how you get to Lady Wisdom's house. Fear God. Have a respect, a trembling awe for his justice and that you're at his mercy and that every action is held accountable to him. So I'm not going to become defiant against him. I have no power to do that. That's, that's true wisdom. Knowing your place before the God of the universe. So in summary, wisdom... Is that blessed state of being in a restored relationship with God. And on the other side, folly is that continual experience of being in a cursed, exiled place from God. Therefore, Solomon wants us, his sons, to seek wisdom. For that is where we find restoration with God and life forever. So, Father, we do seek wisdom, and we ask that you be our guide. Teach us to fear you. Teach us not to be proud, not to be the scoffer. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray you fall afresh on us, that you would melt us, that you would mold us, that you would use us.
that you would fill us with wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.